Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. My name is Arina Tamborska and I'm a neurology trainee at the Walton Center. Uh, this episode is primarily aimed at uh, medical students and uh, early stage non-specialty trainees and today we'll be covering um, central nervous system infections in particular we're going to focus in this episode on meningitis. To talk us through that I have uh, with me uh, Dr. Mark Elu. Mark is a neurology registrar at the Walton Center. His interest is in management and diagnosis of encephalitis having done a PhD on this topic and uh, he's currently also a lecturer specializing in encephalitis at the University of Liverpool. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? Hi, Irina. I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for the yeah. invite. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, so um, let's uh, crack on with the topic and let's start with some basic definitions. So um, what's the difference between meningitis and encephalitis? How would you sort of put it in the simple terms? So encephalitis is uh, inflammation in the brain itself, the parenchyma of the brain. So think about the grey matter, the white matter of the brain. Uh, whereas meningitis is inflammation in the linings of the brain. So if you remember back from your anatomy that there are three basic layers of the meninges. Um, so there's the dura, which is the um, kind of very uh, tough outside layer. Um, then underneath that, you've got the arachnoid, which is sort of um, adherent to the inside of the dura. Uh, then you've got the subarachnoid space, which is filled with CSF, and then you've got the pier, which is um, uh, just just over the surface of the brain. Um, so in meningitis, we're basically talking about inflammation of the inner two layers of so the arachnoid, the subarachnoid space, uh, and the pier. Um, and you, some, you sometimes hear those referred to as the leptomeninges, as opposed to the pachymeninges, which is the dura. Um, so if you hear those terms, that's what that means. But of course, those are those are definitions based on pathology. So we can't open up the head and look at the meninges in the brain. So we rely on the clinical presentation and also the investigations to tell us whether this is meningitis or encephalitis or something else. The other term I guess it might be worth introducing is meningism, which you might hear mentioned. And that's the syndrome of irritation of the meninges. So this is a clinical syndrome. You might have symptoms like neck stiffness, headache and photophobia with that. But people can have meningism without necessarily having meningitis. Okay, brilliant. I think that puts it quite clear in terms of, you know, thinking about it anatomically. So basically meningitis is an infection which sort of stops at the two most outer layers, whereas encephalitis is primarily the infection of the brain parenchyma. But then uh, I've always wondered, can you have both? Can you have meningo encephalitis? Is that actually a term or is it just something that we name patients because we actually don't know exactly where the infection is? Yeah, I guess that's another term that you'll hear um, quite a lot. I suppose people use it in different ways. Um, people might say meningoencephalitis when they're not sure, they haven't decided whether this is meningitis or encephalitis. There are also organisms that can cause some inflammation in both areas. So I suppose that's a sort of more exact way of using that term. And there's certainly some overlap. So um, when you have inflammation of meninges, the brain isn't completely unaffected. So, you know, you're going to have cytokine response. You probably have likely some inflammation in the brain as well. Um, and that's why, that's one of the reasons why the symptoms and signs are sometimes overlapping I think, between the two. So you've mentioned that, um, you know, patients can actually have involvement of, of both regions and they can have both symptoms of encephalitis and meningitis. So let's crack on with meningitis first. What are the sort of core symptoms or signs that people experience? One thing that I used to learn uh, as a medical student is the sort of the two out of four rule 
in that, um, you know, the four core symptoms are headache, fever, neck stiffness and confusion. And uh, really, if a patient has two out of those present, then, you know, meningitis should be at least on our list of differentials. Would you agree with that? Or how would you sort of make your judgment? And what are the typical symptoms of meningitis? Yeah, I think I think that is helpful. Um, so there used to be this idea of a, a triad, um, which was supposed to be fever, neck stiffness and altered mental status, um, which I, I think people in medicine like having triads for things. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, that one wasn't very good. So um, the sensitivity and specificity was quite low. So it was then broadened out, as you say, um, uh, to include headache as well as a, a you know four points to look for, um, and that inc- improves the sensitivity quite quite a lot. Um, I think the the key message is that the symptoms and signs are quite uh, non-specific in general. Um, so I think um, if you had to choose between those four, I would say that altered mental status is often the most useful, and sure. that's borne out by some of the data as well um so uh, and that that's not necessarily just confusion so it could be irritability so someone being particularly irritable who's not who's not normally like that um it could be just some some subtle changes uh, in memory or personality and things like that um so you know um but i think the message is that that's helpful up to a point but if you're thinking about a diagnosis of meningitis then in most cases you're going to have to go on to investigate and treat for it um, because it's quite difficult to exclude meningitis just based on the symptoms and signs. And I guess um, we'll talk about investigations in a bit, but um, before we move on, I just wanted to ask you, are there actually signs or symptoms that are not very helpful, uh, you know, that maybe we've heard about in the textbooks? Yeah, I think... um, so the two that people tend to talk about are Koenig's sign and Brzezinski's sign. And they're basically signs to look for meningeal irritation. So to look for meningism, as we talked about before. And I, yeah, I don't think it's useful to go into the specifics of those, because what we know about them is that they're not very sensitive or specific. Um, so uh, I think if people have a syndrome of meningism, including neck stiffness, photophobia, signs of meningeal irritation, then you're going to be thinking about investigating and treating for meningitis at that stage. And you wouldn't be using the presence or absence of those signs to rule in or rule out. Absolutely, diagnosis. absolutely. Okay, fantastic. So let's talk about the etiology a little bit. What, uh, you know, it's obviously an infectious process. So what bugs uh, cause meningitis? So I think um, before we talk about the individual organisms, if we zoom out a little bit and think about infective versus non-infective. So um, there are a few non-infective causes of uh, meningitis. So um, there are some inflammatory causes. Some drugs can cause a syndrome of meningeal irritation, including chemotherapy agents, sometimes non-steroidal drugs. And you can get a malignant meningitis as well. So these are all things to think about when you're classifying the causes. Thinking just about infective causes, um, the one that we worry about the most, I suppose, is bacterial meningitis, um, just because of the high uh, morbidity and mortality of that, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about. Um, There's also viral causes, and, you know, there may be other causes like fungi and parasites, um, so particularly if you have an immunocompromised patient uh, or you have a returning traveller, you might have to cast the net a bit wider in terms of the causes. The other terms that you might come across, particularly in sort of older textbooks, are purulent meningitis and aseptic meningitis. So this is a little bit old fashioned, but it's still it's still used. Um, Purulent meningitis basically refers to bacterial meningitis. So meningitis with pus, with um, with a neutrophilia. 
And aseptic meningitis basically means anything else other than bacterial meningitis. That's how I think about it. Very good. Can I just ask you here, um, in practice, uh, would you say most of the ones you would see or we would see, you know, as junior doctors in an emergency department, infective is, is more likely? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, and that's the one that you're, you're generally most worried about um, because it will progress rapidly, um, particularly if it's a bacterial infection um, and, as I said, has high morbidity and mortality. Mm. Should we then uh, talk a little bit more about uh, specific uh, microbes that are uh, culprits here then? Sure. So I think it's probably most useful to focus on the bacterial causes. So the two that we're probably most familiar with are uh, pneumococcus and meningococcus, so um, streptococcus pneumoniae is also known as pneumococcus, uh, and Neisseria meningitidis, uh, which is known as meningococcus. So if you hear those terms, they're basically interchangeable. Um, so they're the most uh, common bacterial causes. It, it's helpful to think about it in terms of the age ranges that are particularly susceptible to these bugs. Um, so in adults generally, pneumococcus, uh, streptococcus pneumoniae is the most common cause. Uh, meningococcus then has two peaks, so uh, one in infants less than five uh, and another peak in adolescents. Um, there's a couple of other causes that's worth mentioning. So in neonates, uh, group B streptococcus is a very important cause, uh, which is acquired um, during birth uh, and you know is often picked up and, and treated for. Then in, in the elderly, listeria becomes a more important cause. It's still a minority, um, but it's worth considering and it influences your choice of antibiotics as well. The other thing to mention, I guess, at this stage is vaccination. So um, the vaccination status of your patients is really important to ascertain. Um, so there are vaccines against uh, meningococcus, serotypes B and C, uh, and pneumococcus. Um, so I guess the most important thing to ascertain is if the patient has not had vaccinations. So if, you know, particularly at the moment with the um, vaccination climate and uh, disinformation, um, you know, if the patient's not vaccinated, then you need to think really um, carefully about the bugs that they might be susceptible to. And Mark, and uh, just to sort of um, clarify, is that um, vaccinations in childhood or vaccinations of the elderly? Um, or, or what sort of... Uh, you so know? vaccinations during the normal childhood vaccination mm -hmm. uh, protocol, yeah. So um, if you've got, a, if you're in paediatrics, you want to make sure that they're up to date with their vaccinations. If you've got an adult, you make sure that they've had all the vaccinations that they were supposed to have when they were a child. And then there is a, um, a dose of pneumovax, uh, the pneumococcus vaccine at 65 as well. So it's relevant for older patients. So I guess the takeaway message from this is number one, always ask about vaccinations and, and number two, consider the age of your patient in terms of the etiological factors. Yeah. So obviously, um, you know, uh, absence of vaccination or gaps in the vaccination history are risk factors uh, for meningitis. What other risk factors are there when we think of, uh, you know, when we assess patients and think, could this be meningitis? Yeah, so there are other risk factors that you need to think about. Um, a, a really important one is immunodeficiency. Um, so particularly HIV infection or risk factors for HIV infection, but other immunodeficiencies might be relevant as well. Um, asplenism, if the patients had their spleen removed previously, um, or inherited immunodeficiencies. Um, 
Other infections elsewhere can be relevant, so upper respiratory tract infections, ear infections, uh, or pneumonia. Uh, so this is particularly for um, Streptococcus pneumoniae, which can cause these infections elsewhere. And you will sometimes see patients who have a pneumonia or a, an otitis media, an ear infection, who then develop a meningitis. If the patient has a skull fracture or um, CSF leak or has had instrumentation like neurosurgery, then they can have direct invasion and meningitis as a result of that. And the causes might be, uh, the causative organisms can be a little bit different in that case. Because um, obviously their space, their CSF spaces are open, isn't it? So it's absolutely. like an, an entry point for bacteria. Yeah. Uh, and as we said, travel history can be important as well. Um, and, you know, if it's returning travel, then you, you might need to talk to the infectious diseases team to get an idea of what other causes you should consider. How about uh, dental infections? Yeah, I think it's something that you would consider. Um, and again, you might have to think about what organisms would come from that, um, the um, oral cavity in that case as well. Um, the other thing is, if, if they've had close contact with a case of meningitis, um, that's very relevant as well. Okay, so um, we are now halfway through, so I think it's time to move to a clinical case then and actually chat about the things we would do in practice. Let's say we have a 22-year-old student who lives in student halls and, you know, after the lectures, he doesn't feel very well, has some chorizal symptoms, uh, goes to bed a little bit earlier because he also has a headache and feels quite feverish. Uh, by the morning, he uh, sort of feels worse and misses the lectures and uh, his flatmates actually go into his room and find him confused and not making much sense. So essentially, they bring him to hospital. So seeing that patient in the emergency department, how would you um, actually approach this scenario? What would you do first? Yeah, so that's a really common scenario, isn't it? Um, and as we've discussed, he's got some signs that could be consistent with CNS infection. So uh, he's confused, he's incoherent, he's got headache and he's got fever. He's ticking quite a few of the boxes that we've already talked about. So at this stage, you know, we don't know that he's got meningitis. He could have something else. He could have bad cold or flu and have a migraine. Um, you know, he could, um, and we don't know whether if it is a brain infection, whether it's meningitis or encephalitis. Um, so uh, we have to approach it with quite an open mind. As I mentioned before, I think in a young person who's quite fit, the presence of altered mental status, so confusion, is a real red flag. It takes quite a lot of cerebral dysfunction to make a young person confused. Um, so I think that's something you definitely can't ignore. So I think he definitely needs um, further investigation. So, you know, initially, like with any patient, you're going to assess him um, with a focused history and examine him. So we've mentioned some of the things to look for in history, um, any contacts that have been ill, his vaccination status, comorbidities that he might have. Has he been abroad recently? Um, you're going to examine him, you're going to look at his um, basic observations. So we know he's got history of a fever, but does he have a fever at the moment? And are there signs of sepsis? So has he got high respiratory rate? Is he tachycardic? What is his blood pressure like? And then you're going to examine him for, for other signs. So we're looking for the presence of rash. Has he got uh, lymph node enlargement? Uh, has he got any other signs of infection like an ear infection or uh, signs of pneumonia? And, and then he... specifically, Mark, what kind of rash would you be most worried about? Yeah, so um, I think there's there's quite a lot of awareness of non-blanching rash and there's public health campaigns about this wasn't there so people the general public are very aware of this um, and certainly um, that's important to look for and if, if there is a non-blanching rash um, so here we're talking about a purpuric rash so essentially blood under the skin 
then that's that's pretty sensitive and specific for meningococcal uh, infection. So you're definitely looking for that. Other rashes might be relevant as well. So, for example, with enterovirus, you can get you can get a rash. Uh, with with varicella zoster, you can get a rash. So those are relevant as well. And you're going to be looking whether he's got any focal neurological signs as well, and for those signs of meningism that we talked about. So uh, next, stiffness, photophobia. And then you're going to want to do some investigations. So blood tests, uh, looking at his inflammatory markers. Um, I think it's important to get a, a finger prick glucose as well in, in any anyone who's presents with confusion. Absolutely, exclude um, hypoglycemia, and especially if they're infected and unwell and septic. That could be, you know, two things uh, in the same patient. Yeah. 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 Um, and you'd want to get blood cultures. You know, he's had a you know he's had a temperature. Anyone who presents with um, suspected meningitis should have an HIV test as well. So regardless of whether there are any risk factors you identify from the history. But the main investigation that is going to tell you whether this is a brain infection or not is a lumbar puncture. So analysing the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF. So at that point, you want to um, decide whether you can do a lumbar puncture straight away or whether you need to give treatment uh, immediately first. Right. So it's it's sort of a tricky decision making there, isn't it? And, and um, you know, people actually often ask me in practice, when do I go and do a lumbar puncture straight away? And in what circumstances, uh, you know, I just treat or, you know, I need to do more tests. So, for example, scan someone's head. Yeah. So I think it is a, a bit of a tricky area. I think, um, you know, the bottom line is that these patients, as we said, has have a high morbidity and mortality and the priority is getting antibiotics into them. So if you think there's going to be any delay at all in doing the lumbar puncture, then the priority should be giving the antibiotics straight away. And as you may know, if you've done general practice placements, the advice for GPs seeing patients with suspected meningitis is to give antibiotics in the community. So normally a shot of benzoyl penicillin while they're waiting for the ambulance to take them to hospital. So if you think there's going to be any delay to doing the lumbar puncture at all, then give antibiotics straight away and then do the lumbar puncture as soon as possible afterwards. Brilliant. So that's, uh, you know, um, obviously uh, antibiotics first and then don't delay that. Uh, are there any other reasons why you would sort of delay lumbar puncture? Uh, and, and specifically, people often ask about imaging. When would you get a CT head? Yeah, so this is another, um, has been another slightly controversial topic over the years. So the worry is that if there's raised intracranial pressure, which is non-communicating, so you've got... Um, you've got a pressure differential between the intracranial space and the, the spinal column where you can do the lumbar puncture, that there's a theoretical risk that you could herniate. You know, that's obviously very dangerous. This is actually very rare in practice, but, you know, it is a, it is a concern that people have. And, you know, on the other hand, we have the, the fact that if you delay the lumbar puncture to do a scan, then your, your likelihood of culturing the organism and getting a diagnosis is reduced. So those are the, the two things to weigh up. I think in most centres in the UK, this is less of an issue than it used to be because it's become much easier to get CT scans done. So often the patient in practice will have had a CT scan pretty much as soon as they get through the door. Before you even manage to gather equipment for lumbar puncture. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So before, you know, before the general medics have seen the, the A&E team will often have organised a CT, CT of the brain. But you may still work in, in centres where CTs will be delayed. So it's, it's worth thinking about it. And I think, you know, the, the message is that most of the time a CT isn't required unless there are signs consistent with raised intracranial pressure. Um, so the main ones to think about are low conscious level, 
and we often think of a Glasgow Coma score of 12 or less. The guidelines vary a bit, 12 or 13, but you know, a significantly reduced conscious level. If someone's having continuous or uncontrolled seizures, so if they've had a seizure in you know, a few days ago and they recovered, that's that's not a problem. But if they're having seizures which are uncontrolled, and if there's focal neurological signs. The other thing is uh, looking for papilledema, so swelling of the, the optic disc. This is often very difficult for people to do in practice because people aren't very confident looking for papilledema. And often, you know, in the in the A&E, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. So if you can't if you can't see the fundus, if you can't get a good view, there's no reason to get a CT scan for that, for just that, you know, if there aren't any other contraindications. Absolutely, um, yeah. But so just for the textbook purposes, we would probably say, you know, low GCS, focal neurological signs, seizures. And I've used to also learn about immunocompromised patients because uh, they might be more prone to having focal brain lesions as well. Would you agree that's a sort of a valid Absolutely, yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable point. Um, the other thing to mention um, is if, if the patient has um, it is septic, so has clear signs of severe sepsis, it's probably reasonable to proceed with treatment without lumbar puncture because lumbar puncture is going to take time away, particularly in an unstable patient. And in that situation, you're much more likely to get a diagnosis from blood culture as well. So if you have a patient with either signs of meningococcal sepsis or severe sepsis, you can just proceed to treatment uh, as a priority rather than spending try- time trying to organise a lump puncture. Absolutely. Tachycardia, low blood pressure, you have to stabilise those parameters before you can some- actually turn someone onto their side and then stick a needle into their back, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the last one of the mystifying lumbar punctures is uh, coagulation arrangements. Um, what are sort of your thoughts on that? I know there are specific guidelines and I guess we should probably say just refer to that, isn't it? Yeah, so if you've got patients who are taking anticoagulants like uh, like warfarin or um, or doax, then you need to refer to the guidance about about timing of lumbar puncture. The same with antiplatelets like aspirin and clopidogrel. There's no need to wait for blood results for coagulation to do a lumbar puncture if you, if you don't have any reason to suspect that the patient has a problem with their clotting. Clearly, if they've you know, if they've got um, a reason to be thrombocytopenic to have low platelets um, because of other medical problems or something like that, then uh, then you may have to do the clotting. But in general, you can just proceed with lumbar puncture. Absolutely, yes. I think these are the most most common sort of uh, considerations we've discussed. First of all, is the patient, you know, uh, too septic to have a lumbar puncture and then treat them treat them first? Are there any uh, focal neurological deficits, reduced GCS, seizures, immunocompromise uh, that, you know, would prompt CT, although the CT would most, most often be done even before you get to see the patient? And then lastly, you know, no need to wait for, for sort of coagulation test unless you have a strong suspicion they would be abnormal. Okay, so we are at the point where um, uh, we've decided we are doing a lumbar puncture. What kind of tests do we want to send and what are we looking for in them? Yeah, so um, the main test that you're going to send on anyone who's having a lumbar puncture, you're going to look at the protein in the CSF, the glucose in the CSF, and uh, you should also send blood for plasma glucose as well, because it's useful for glucose to to do a ratio between the plasma glucose and CSF glucose. And then you're going to want microscopy culture and sensitivity. Um, So that's going to give you the cell count, the white cells and red cells, uh, and also look for any organisms visible in the CSF with the gram stain. And then in the lab, they'll try and culture uh, organisms and look for antibiotic sensitivities. So that's that's a key thing, really. You, you're going to also want to send the viral PCR panel as well. So um, in most labs, that will give you herpes simplex virus 
varicella and enterovirus as standard. If you've got patients who are immunocompromised, then you'd want to broaden that out to have some other organisms as well. And you might want to take some advice uh, from virology on that. So in terms of, you know, um, bacterial meningitis, let's let's stick to one one scenario that we, we've talked about of this young student. What would you expect to find in his uh, sort of baseline um, CSF results? Yeah, so um, if you've got an infection in the CSF, particularly a bacterial infection, you're going to expect an increase in the white cell count. For bacterial infection, you'd expect that to be neutrophils or polymorphs, and that can often be extremely high. You will expect uh, an increase in the protein as well. So if you think about uh, an organism in the CSF, you'll have dead organisms, viable organisms, they're all going to be releasing protein. So often the protein can be very high as well. And the bacteria and also the, the white blood cells fighting the bacteria are all going to be metabolizing glucose. Uh, so the glucose may be very low. The other thing we should mention is the opening pressure. So as we've mentioned... I was just to pull the, you up on that one, yes. <laughs> yeah, the intracranial pressure, you know, expect that to increase and you may see a raised uh, opening pressure, which can be helpful. And also the CSF itself, just when you look at it, can look turbid. So you can see that there's, you know, there's an inflammation process going on. If you're suspecting meningitis, then the other test you should send is a PCR for meningococcus and pneumococcus. So that's a very useful test. It's, it's highly uh, sensitive and specific, um, and it can remain positive for longer than the CSF culture. Um, and so is that on the CSF uh, fluid or is that on blood? Fluid? Well, you can do it on both, but certainly you should be sending it on the CSF. Yeah, it's useful also to ask the lab to uh, always save a sample of CSF as well. So that's, you know, if, if you realise you need to do other tests in the future, you don't need to repeat the lumbar puncture. Sure. I'm going to go off the script now. I hope you don't mind. But we've mentioned that pressure might be raised and, you know, usually would be raised with sort of bacterial meningitis. Is there value in reducing the pressure by taking a larger volume out um, or not necessarily? Because, you know, once we treat the infection, that's just going to settle by itself. Yeah, I mean, there's no evidence for doing that in bacterial meningitis, um, but there are some types of meningitis where that's helpful. So, for example, cryptococcal meningitis often needs to be treated by repeated lumbar puncture to reduce reduce the CSF pressure. So that's slightly off, off maybe <laughs> off the topic of the of the podcast, but yeah. So there are some situations where we do lumbar punctures to to reduce pressure, but this this lumbar puncture is diagnostic rather than therapeutic. Fantastic. Right. So we've talked about the CSF. We've talked about the sort of baseline investigations like, you know, the blood cultures, uh, baseline biochemistry, full blood count, checking the blood glucose. Are there any other special tests uh, you would consider sending, you know, outside of the CSF or within the CSF? Um, so we, we briefly mentioned PCR. So as we said, we can do that in CSF, we can do that in blood. The guidelines recommend doing a swab of the nasopharynx as well for culture for meningococcus. And you can also do viral throat swab as well to look for, to look for viral infection. You can um, take swabs from rashes as well for viruses, for enterovirus, for example. Uh, and you can sometimes culture meningococcus from meningococcal rash, although that's that's probably not the Standard first test is. that you would do. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> Um, the Urinary antigens? Yeah, so uh, there, there was a role for that. We tend to do that less nowadays, um, now that PCR has become more available, because I think the sensitivity uh, isn't as good as PCR. Um, but you can do a pneumococcal antigen in urine. I suppose the other thing that we should talk about is imaging. So we talked briefly about CT as looking for raised intracranial pressure for lumbar puncture. 
people often ask about MRI, um, which I don't think is, it's not a, a key part of the investigations. It's mostly useful for looking for either other causes or looking for complications of meningitis. Uh, although you can often see inflammation of the meninges, particularly with contrast MRI, you can see uh, leptomeningeal enhancement in meningitis. Okay, brilliant. So I think we have quite a good overview of um, all the investigations we should do. I would say probably the one that we forget the most is the, uh, would you say, the HIV test? Absolutely, yeah. Um, It's the one that people tend to forget, and it completely changes the differential diagnosis. So it's really important um, for any any patient that you, well, any patient with with sepsis really should have an HIV test, but particularly if you're suspecting brain infection. Yeah, so it's not not forgetting that one. Uh, and I guess uh, the other sin is uh, sometimes not sending the serum glucose when you're sending a CSF glucose, because actually if, if your blood glucose is low, then low um, CSF glucose is not maybe as concerning. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think um, the other thing is patients with diabetes. Um, so... You know, if, if you've got a patient with very fluctuating blood sugars and you've just got a CSF glucose, you're left guessing about whether that's relevant or not. So it's useful to know what their plasma glucose was at exactly the same time. Fantastic. So these are the brownie points uh, for uh, not only for medical examination, but also for practice. And um, I guess it's time to probably talk a little bit about the management. We discussed, you know, the priority and the importance of giving antibiotics, ideally probably within the first hour of, of patients presenting to hospital, especially if they're septic, that's, a, that's the septic, sepsis guidelines. So what would you tell us a little bit more, you know, in terms of um, antibiotic choices and also any other treatments we use uh, for meningitis? Yeah, I mean, the, the guidelines for antibiotics might vary a bit depending on um, the trust you're working in, um, and they will you know, change with local resistance patterns, etc. But generally, you're going to be giving um, a cephalosporin antibiotic um, like keftriaxone, and uh, you may need to add amoxicillin as well, and that's to cover for listeria, so particularly in, in older people. We mentioned already that um, in the community, we often give benzoyl penicillin either intramuscularly or, or intravenously if it's possible. And, uh, you know, if there's penicillin allergy, then I think the key thing is to try, first of all, establish whether it's a true allergy and then to consult either your, your hospital guidelines or microbiology team for advice about an alternative. Absolutely. And then, um, you know, we sometimes use steroids as well, dexamethasone. What's the role for that and in what situations would you use it? Yeah, uh, there is some evidence that dexamethasone um, reduces the risk of hearing loss um, and neurological deficits uh, after bacterial meningitis. So it is worth giving dexamethasone. It has to be given early, so it has to be given either um, just before the first dose of antibiotics or, or shortly afterwards. So if you if you kind of remembered after two or three days that you should be given steroids, then it's not worth doing it at that point. But it is worth it if you can, you know, if you have a patient where you're strongly suspecting bacterial meningitis starting it early. And how many days uh, do you give the treatment for, I mean, both the antibiotics and, and uh, the dexamethasone? Uh, so the dexamethasone is, is for four days, according to the guidance. The antibiotics is a little bit less clear, but normally at, at least seven days, and normally you'd be reviewing that. Um, so if you get culture positivity and sensitivities, then you, you might be able to streamline your antibiotics and focus them down. Uh, onto a less broad spectrum antibiotic. Is uh, stopping the antibiotics a clinical judgment or is it, uh, you know, we have to repeat uh, lumbar puncture and say, well, we are now clear, all the parameters are going back to normal, therefore we are okay to stop. What's the practice? 
yeah, so I guess this is a little bit different from encephalitis. I think we're going to talk about it. Yeah, we'll leave it to the next episode. Um, uh, so there isn't really a role for repeating the lumbar puncture in bacterial meningitis because um, with antibiotics, the, uh, the bacteria will be cleared. You hope they'll be cleared fairly quickly anyway. So, you know, it, normally you just give a call. It's a clinical decision together with the microbiology team how long the course is, and then you would, you would stop it. Absolutely. Okay, so um, let's uh, say, you know, we've had our treatment and, uh, you know, we've completed antibiotics, our patient got better. To what extent are we actually expecting a full recovery from bacterial meningitis? What are the sort of sequelae and, you know, how many patients improve and how many actually, um, you know, might have residual deficits? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we've said at the outset that mortality is is still substantial from Mm. this, um, even if even if treatment is started early, so it could be up to 10% wow. of patients of patients will die. And there are a number of complications that can develop um, afterwards. Um, so uh, just to go over some of those, I mean, you can develop raised intracranial pressure um, because the, the arachnoid villi, which are, just to go back to the pathology, in the subarachnoid space where CSF is normally absorbed. If there's inflammation and destruction there, then CSF isn't getting absorbed. And uh, you can have uh, raised cranial pressure and hydrocephalus uh, uh, as a result of that. Uh, some patients will have seizures, so either as part of the initial illness or may go on to develop uh, epilepsy longer term. We've mentioned hearing loss as well, and there may be other neurological deficits as well after this. But many patients will go on to have perhaps more subtle cognitive or neuropsychiatric problems afterwards as well. So um, uh, even in the survivors, there's a very high rate of morbidity. Right. Well, so um, what can we do to, you know, uh, stop those complications from appearing? Is this pretty much early recognition and and early um, antibiotics? Or are there any other um, therapies or um, cognitive rehabilitation, you know, we can do later on to actually maximize the recovery? Well, I think this is a very active area of research and there's been a lot of effort, hasn't there, over the years improving public awareness of meningitis um, and uh, time to uh, time to admission and time to um, antibiotics, which I think is the key sort of modifiable um, intervention. You know, I don't think there are any other sort of miracle treatments that I know of at the moment, um, <laughs> but I'm sure there are people working on that. We're working on that, um, yeah. Prevention, and, yeah. obviously, isn't it, as well, with the vaccinations? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely key, and particularly overseas where vaccinations aren't as available. And, you know, many of these patients will go on to need some form of rehabilitation, neurorehabilitation afterwards. That's brilliant, Mark. Well, I think it's been really helpful. You know, we've talked in detail about the risk factors, the etiology of bacterial meningitis, how patients present, uh, what investigations we should do. I talked in detail about um, indications for imaging, indications for lumbar puncture, what exactly we want to test from it, and then also about how we manage the patients and what the outcomes are. So I think that's uh, bacterial meningitis in a nutshell. But as we mentioned at the beginning, of course, there are different types of meningitis, and we talked about sort of non-infectious meningitis. But within infectious meningitis itself there is of course also viral meningitis and it's not the focus of this podcast but uh, just to sort of you know put it all together into into one episode uh, how is it different from bacterial meningitis in terms of the presentation uh, well i think it, you know the key point is that it, it may not be that different it may be very similar in terms of its presentation so it may come as part of a, a flu-like illness 
and then patients develop meningism uh, as part of that. They're probably less likely to have signs of severe sepsis than those with bacterial meningitis. But the meningism in terms of the next step is photophobia, etc., can be just as prominent in viral meningitis as it is in bacterial. Um, so most patients are going to need to be treated as if they had bacterial meningitis at the outset until you you rule that out with a lung and puncture. And investigated exactly with lumbar puncture or just the same, yeah. in the same fashion. Um, and um, in terms of the, uh, you know, viral meningitis, um, can you just name a couple of most common viruses, you know, that are the main culprits? Yeah, so um, the most common one is enteroviruses uh, of various various strains. Herpes simplex viruses, uh, particularly type 2, can also cause uh, meningitis and varicella, so the virus that causes chickenpox can as well. And I think, you know, we traditionally we think of viral meningitis being a sort of quite benign condition that we, you know, is mainly important as a differential diagnosis for bacterial meningitis. But in recent years, there's been a lot of evidence that actually this is um, a condition that really affects quality of life and patients go on to have neurocognitive and neuropsychiatric problems and headache disorders afterwards. So there's a lot of active research about treatment of viral meningitis now as well. Do we treat it at the moment in practice or is it sort of still within the research uh, scope? So there's no evidence for giving antiviral medication for viral meningitis, no evidence that improves outcome at the moment. Um, and obviously some of the viruses, HSV and varicella, would be acyclovir responsive. So that's one of the areas of research interest. And uh, lastly, um, in terms of the CSF for viral meningitis, uh, obviously, you know, your viral PCR would be hopefully positive for one of the culprits. Uh, bacterial culture would be negative. Is protein still raised? Is the um, uh, opening pressure raised? And what is the glucose doing? Yeah, so if you think back to our um, idea of organisms in the CSF, so viruses aren't the same as bacteria, are they? They don't um, uh, metabolize glucose in the same way. So the glucose is often normal. The protein may be a little bit high, but not normally as high as it is in um, bacterial infections. The opening pressure, again, will either be normal or slightly elevated. And then in terms of the white cells in viral infections, generally you're more likely to have lymphocytes rather than neutrophils. So that's great. I think that summarizes the differences between viral meningitis and bacterial meningitis. And I think with that, we sadly are getting to the end of the episode. So let's just um, get to the core messages. What are the three things you would like uh, our listeners to take away from this podcast? <laughs> so I think um, about clinical features, it's, uh, you know, it's really important to have a high index of suspicion. So you can't really rule out meningitis just based on clinical features. And the, the clinical features that there are are quite non-specific and not very sensitive. So you always have to have it there in your mind. I think the point about giving antibiotics as quickly as possible is really important. So if you think there's going to be any delay to doing the lumbar puncture, giving antibiotics straight away um, and then doing the lumbar puncture as quickly as you can to maximise the chances that you'll be able to find the organism and treat it effectively. So in summary, suspect it, treat it promptly and do the right investigations as always, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, Mark, brilliant. Thank you so much for chatting to us about meningitis. And I'm really looking forward to our next episode on encephalitis, which I think is even closer to your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.